A quick word of warning before we get into this season of Mogul. In this story, you're going to hear a lot of curse words and a lot of references to sex acts. If podcasts use parental advisory stickers, this show would have one slapped across the cover. One other thing to know, this show has a lot of bass in it. So listen with your best speakers and crank the volume up. I want to take you back to the night of June 10th, 1990. There was a full house at the Club Futura nightclub in Hollywood, Florida. Everyone was there to see the hot new rap group 2 Live Crew perform their hit album, As Nasty As They Want To Be. Club Futura is small, dark, and sweaty. There was about 400 people in the crowd that night, crammed in shoulder to shoulder. And from the moment 2 Live Crew frontman Luke Campbell walked on the stage and launched into their hit song, Head Booty Cock, every single one of them went totally apeshit. Everyone was just bouncing off the walls. I thought the place was just gonna fall apart. That's the feeling I got. I, I wasn't nervous, but I was just like, man, I, this club can't take this. This is crazy. It was like a bomb that was lit. The place was on fire, you know, you know, lit- not literally, but figuratively. There's this picture that was taken to the crew that night. In it, you see the group's leader, Luke Campbell. He's in an orange t-shirt that says, too black, too strong, too live. He's tilting the mic to his mouth and grinning. The packed crowd in front of him are frozen mid-hop, mid-bump, mid-grind. Luke looks unstoppable. He looks like a god. But just a few hours after that concert, a totally different picture. Luke's been over the side of a police car, legs spread, his palms stretched across the hood. He's still in that same orange t-shirt, too black, too strong, too live. Behind him, there's a cop, a much shorter man in a starched white shirt. He has his hands around Luke's waist. In the background, there are more cops and blinking police lights. A crowd begins to gather, and one of them is filming. So what you're hearing is actual footage of what happened that night. The cops tell everyone to stand back. You guys want to back up a minute, please? And then, the cuffs go on. The thing that got Luke arrested that night, it was the same thing that got the crowd screaming his name. His lyrics. He landed in handcuffs because of lines like this. 
and this, and this. See, just a few days earlier, a Florida judge had ruled that two live crews' music was obscene. And so performing their songs was now against the law. That's why Luke was being arrested. And it's how Luke and the two live crew became hip-hop's unlikely champions for freedom of speech. From Spotify and Gimlet Media, you're listening to Mogul, a show about hip-hop's most iconic moments told by the people who live them. This season, we'll tell you the story of how Luke Campbell and the two live crew took hip-hop and made it faster and harder and nastier. So nasty that they ended up getting arrested and put on trial for obscenity. Luke and the crew were going to have to fight to keep their music on the airwaves and to keep themselves out of jail. And that battle exploded, forcing people across America to talk about race, sex, power, who gets to say what, and who should be allowed to listen to it. Luke became the face of that fight. He stood on his own, his own ten toes, stood up, went to war, fight against the government, fucking democracy, you know what I'm saying? Talk them niggas to the Supreme Court. He went in there and he represented. He dressed the part, he spoke the part, and he acted the part. He went and fought for something that paved the way for all of us to be able to come into this platform to do what we're doing. Like, it would be none of us here without that, you know? That was bigger than hip-hop. That put Miami on the map. We're going to take you inside the world of the two live crew and the other hustlers, dreamers, and DJs who shaped hip-hop in the 305. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and on this season of Mogul, we're going to Miami. Say the words 1980s Miami, and you get a flood of pop culture references. You got Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas in Miami Vice, Bronze Bodies on the Beach, Fun in the Sun, Yacht Parties, Discotheques, Scarface. Say hello to my little friend! And of course, South Beach. That iconic shoreline of newly built skyscrapers reaching into the sky, with drop-top convertibles revving up and down Ocean Drive. But we're not going there. Because our story, the story of the birth of Miami hip-hop and the two live crew, it takes place about nine miles away from South Beach, across the bay, deep in the heart of inner city Miami, in a neighborhood called Liberty City, the black part of town. South Beach is not Miami. This is Maurice Samuel Young, but you might know him by his stage name. Yo, this Trick Daddy Dollars representing Miami 305 Dade County. Trick grew up in Liberty City. It's six square miles, 20,000 people, almost all of them black. Us as hood people, people out the hood, I wouldn't even say niggas or black people, people out the hood, we didn't, couldn't, and had no intentions on going to South Beach. We didn't go there. If you really was from Miami back in them days, like you, South Beach wasn't the thing to go to. This is Trina. And I am a hip-hop international Rockstar. 
Trick and Trina say that they didn't need South Beach because for black kids in Liberty City, there was only one place to kick it, a teen disco called the Pack Jam. And everything we're going to talk about in this story, bass, booty shaking, the first album to be declared legally obscene, it all starts here. It, it, it was the, like the birth of the culture. It kind of defined it, you know what I'm saying? Like, it gave us identity, you know? Like, you go to the this weekend, you talking about it all weekend school, and you can't wait to get back to the next weekend, you know? Friday and Saturday, you know? That's JT Money. JT was part of the Miami rap group Poison Clan. He was a teenager when the Pac Jam opened up. And when it did, it was one of the few places for kids in the neighborhood to go. After a riot in 1980, the economy in Liberty City tanked. Crime and unemployment rose, and a lot of local businesses moved out of the neighborhood. And the Pac Jam moved in. It was based in an empty warehouse, the perfect spot because there was lots of space for a dance floor and stacks of speakers. And kids like JT, Trick, and Trina would come through to dance their asses off. Me and some cats in Miami, we debate on this, but I know the truth because I was there. First Pac Jam was on 199th, and off of 441. It, it got so jam-packed, they just reversed the name and called it the Pack Jam. You know, as you walking up to the place, you can feel the doors vibrating. You can hear the ha 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 You know what I'm saying? And by the time you open it, <laughs> the music all in your chest, but that's what we went there for. As soon as the door swing open, it's like thunder. Just imagine like one whole wall filled with like speakers. I mean like maybe eight to 10 speakers and this is one side and the other side is equally the same. I remember being a youngster pulling up. You see, of course, all the hustlers, you know what I'm saying? All the old schools. This is Rick Ross. The biggest boss in the game, young Renzel, AKA Rick Ross. I remember seeing Trina this Years before she uh, was an artist, she was just one of those bad hood stallions. And I remember seeing her pull up and, God damn, that's what this shit is. You know what I'm saying? You you brought out the, the finest in the city, the richest in the hood. That's what you brought out when you went to the pack jam. I'm trying to imagine, like, you know, how many people were in there? What was it hot in there? Was it like, what were people yeah. wearing? Yeah. Well, you know, Miami. We barely wore clothes back then. <laughs> you ain't wearing what you wore at the house with your mama. No, ma. When we get out the car, my homegirl got the bag, and we're changing it to our tennis skirt, because this was tennis skirts was popping back then. Oh, trust me, that was the whole vibe. It was always going to be something tight and cut up. That's DJ Nisi D. She used to hang out at the Pack Jam, too. It was tight <laughs> and lace or tight and, and fringe or tight and tight and black. It had to be black. We wore silk shirt, fisherman hat, tailor-made pants. You, you had the, the, the wavy hair, uh, whether it was your own or a weave. <laughs> of course, in the 80s, everybody had a Michael Jackson jacket. If you ain't had a Michael Jackson jacket, you was a mob. With the zippers? Yes, you had the Michael Jackson jacket. So picture the inside of the pack jam. You got about 600 teenagers crammed into a space designed to hold no more than 300. And as you can imagine, it would get pretty hot in there. Hot, it's like 110 degrees hot. Like super hot, because you got all these kids packed up in here. 
You know, kids, they wild and they dance and they all over the floor. I'm saying so hot to like the walls are wet, sweating like. A lot of people told me that, that it would get so hot inside the pack jam that the walls would drip. It was also super loud in there. The noise was driven by a wall of powerful Sirwin Vegas speakers. Everyone called them Vegas for short. And they were stacked on top of rows and rows of bass bins. They needed all this gear because at the pack jam, it wasn't enough to hear the music. You had to feel it. The real niggas, right, what we call the real niggas, the goons, the thugs, we stood in front of that Vega. Even with the sound? That, 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 that the sound was the high. The sound kept us going. The bass, the, the high intensity, it kept us going. If you go in the club and the, and the sound don't sound right, we be right, man, let's get out of here, man. They need to get that fixed, that sound. We, we need that sound. We need it to sound good. We need to feel it. Bass, it, you had to have good speakers that could push that bass out, you know what I mean? The bass literally just takes control of my organs on the inside and they just start vibrating and bouncing to the music. Hmm. And I just become one with the vibration of the bass and the beat of the music. And presiding over all these stacks of speakers and grinding bodies, the undisputed king of the pack jam, Luke Campbell. He's the guy who got arrested at the start of the episode for his dirty rhymes. Luke's the one who made all this come to life. The dude who had the idea, bought the building, lined it with speakers, and put the word out in Liberty City. I think Luke was the man. Luke was the man. You know, I'm looking up as, yeah, that's Luke Skywalker right there. That's the guy who throw the pay jams, you know? We knew him as such. Luke been the party man. It was Those were epic, epic parties. I mean, my parties as a DJ uh, at the Pack Jam were, I mean, were historic. That's the man himself, Luke Campbell. Luke was sort of like the Pack Jam's conductor, but he wasn't controlling an orchestra. He was moving a crowd full of sweaty teenagers. And most nights, the kids at the Pack Jam would be begging Luke to spin a certain record, a record that brought everything to its apex. Because this song told everyone that it was time to hit the dance floor, and move together as one. Think cha-cha slide. But this wasn't the kind of dance routine you could teach your grandma, because the Pac Jam signature dance was called Throw the D, and it was raunchy as hell. Here to explain, JT Money. Well, it, it was cool to throw the D back then. You know what I'm saying? Back then, you know, the Throw the D boys got all the girls. The routine was legendary among Liberty City teenagers in the 80s. It always started the same way. Luke or one of the Pac Jam's other DJs would put on a record called Herman Kelly's Dance to the Drummer's Beat. And as soon as that beat dropped, everyone went wild. It was time to throw that D. You got to uh, pump your hip. You got to thrust your hips forward. You got to make sure that D snap. Yes, they would squat low and they would just throw it forward. It's a a pump motion. It's like throwing that dick, you know? You're slanging it to her, you know? You're putting it on the table. Like, come in, girl, get some of this. When they say throw that D, they meant throw that D, like... (laughs) It's advertisement. (laughs) It's the the male mating call. 
the male mating signal. You know how the peacock open his, his tail, swing. Yeah. <laughs> Niggas uh, in Miami throw the dick. Throw that D. Throw that, throw that, throw that D. Throw, throw that D. What? Yes, and they were doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Kids like JT, Trick, Trina, Nisi D, and Ross would go to the Pac Jam every weekend. They'd pull up in the evening in their Michael Jackson jackets and their tennis skirts and dance until the early hours of the morning, even though a lot of them are still really young. And the, the, the original Pac Jam, believe it or not, in middle school, on Friday night, the Pac Jam closed at 3 o'clock a.m. And on Saturday night, it closed at 4 o'clock. Now, keep in mind, this is Pack Jam Teen Disco that closed at 4 o'clock. <laughs> and it was like, we was advanced because we grew up fast. In the fifth grade, it was usual, if you was a virgin in the fifth grade, girl or boy, you was considered as a lame, an L7. They picked on you. Fifth grade. That's crazy, ain't it? But that's way before a lot of these diseases that that that, that, that terminate your life. Only thing we had to worry about was catching crabs and, and gonorrhea at the time. Shot in the ass and some old blue star coil um, shampoo. A night at the Pac Jam was not to be missed, and it was here in this sweatbox teen disco that a new kind of music would be formed—a hip hop subgenre, a faster, nastier, dirtier version, propelled by the 808 drum machine and enough bass to make your spine shake. They called it Miami Bass. It was this music that would propel Luke and the Two Live crew to stardom and set them on a collision course with the U.S. government. After the break, we hear the song that lights the fuse. Luther Campbell, uh, I'm from Miami, Florida. No doubt about that, Liberty City. And uh, I do quite a few things. I'm a music entertainer. You got to have it that close. Um, Luke's talking to my producer, Matt, here. He thought Matt was holding the mic a bit too close. I can, is he okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're about to hit me with that motherfucker. Uh, yeah. Uh, music entertainer, rapper, uh, performer. You name it. Luke is Liberty City born and raised. Before he started the Pac Jam Teen Disco, he had a lot of other businesses. Luke was the kind of kid who was always hustling. He had a paper route. He worked as a caddy. He swept hair. He mowed lawns, sold hot dogs, picked up trash. When he was in middle school, he even rented a Pac-Man game and started charging kids in the neighborhood to come over and play. And when he was a little older, he started to DJ and pick up gigs here and there. But in Liberty City there was always another way to make money. One where the risks are greater, but so are the rewards. When he was a teenager, like a lot of kids he knew, Luke joined a gang. The biggest gang in Miami. You know, one of the biggest ones. And, you know, I was the leader of that. So he started making money in the streets. You know, we did everything. You name it, from selling weed to the whole nine yards. Luke's mother worried that her son was headed to jail. Or worse, the cemetery. So she intervened and sent him to stay with his elder brother, Stanley, in Washington, D.C. Stanley had just gone out of the military and was starting his own company. The idea was that he straightened Luke out, set him on the right path. But what Luke saw during that visit 
would do a lot more than keep him out of trouble. D.C. changed his entire outlook on what was possible for a young black man like him. So when I got there, I saw African-Americans doing different things. I was like, man, I'm seeing black people with suits on and walking around with briefcases and riding in Mercedes and, and BMWs and nice houses. I'm going to neighborhoods, I mean, indoor pools and things like that. I'm like, wow, you know, this it, it kind of opened me up to saying, man, I'm living down here. And it's, it's like we're really second-class citizens to everybody. So I saw things that other people and other black people in Miami did not see. And so my eyes were open from the business aspect. When Luke got back to Miami, he figured that the best way to start his own business and make money was to use his DJ skills and create a teen disco. And that's how he got the Pack Jam. And like we heard, it was the spot for local teenagers to dance their asses off. But the Pac Jam was about more than just cutting a rug. It was the first place a lot of local kids got to see hip-hop perform live. See, New York is the birthplace of hip-hop, so it's always been the epicenter. By the mid-80s, LA was starting to muscle in too. And you'd find acts popping up in cities like Philly and Houston. But in Miami, not so much. Back in the day, it was a hip-hop desert. So Luke tried to change that by bringing established hip-hop artists down to Miami to play the Pac Jam. Artists like T. LaRock, uh, uh, Jazzy J, uh, Divine Sound, um, Egyptian Lover, you name it, Run DMC. We would bring, I would bring out all these guys. But Luke wasn't just booking existing acts. He also wanted the Pac Jam to be a place where people could hear music they couldn't hear anywhere else. One thing I would do as a DJ was look at my records find out all the records that came out that week. And, and I would break records every week you come to my party. Uh, I would break a new record that I would stand behind that I would think was a hot song. Luke would find a lot of these records by digging through crates of newly released songs at the Miami record pool. That's a spot where all the local DJs would gather to hear a record label's newest release. And one day when he was digging through crates, Luke came across a record by an obscure hip-hop act from California. They called themselves the Two Live Crew. And there was a line in one of their songs that instantly caught his attention. It went like this. See, around this time, Luke Campbell would DJ at the Pack Jam under the name Luke Skywalker. And he saw this record as the perfect way to let everybody at the Pack Jam know that he was in the house. So he'd back it up and play it over and over and over again. The fact that they unintentionally name-checked a concert promoter 3,000 miles away turned out to be Two Live Crew's big break. Which is ironic because these guys had absolutely no idea who Luke Campbell was. And they never heard of the Pac Jam. In fact, the guys who would go on to introduce the world to Miami bass and booty-shaking music weren't even professional musicians. At this point, they were just a couple of dudes in the Air Force who made hip-hop for fun. My name is Chris Fresh Kid Eyes Wang Wen of the Two Live Crew. I'm one of the founding members of a group that changed the world. What you want to know, i tell you. Fresh Kid Eyes passed away in 2017. This is archived from a documentary about Miami bass called Music Regulators. In this interview, Ice talks about how he got started in hip-hop. I was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad. You know, I'm half Chinese, half black. I moved to New York um, 
1977, um, the summer of Sam, the day after the, the blackout in Brooklyn. And right around hip hop's Big Bang. Like so many kids of his generation, Ice was obsessed with this new style of music. Ice started to write rhymes and collect them in a notebook he carried everywhere. He wanted to be a rapper, but a career in hip hop seemed unlikely. So when he was 18, he joined the Air Force. He was stationed out in Riverside, California. And Ice says that he stood out from the guys on the base. Most of them were listening to rock and roll back then. But Ice was pure b-boy, swagged out in a bomber and a snapback cap. One day he was approached by another guy from the base. He said he'd seen Ice walking around in his hip-hop gear and wanted to introduce himself. He was like, okay, you just got here? You, you went to rap? He said, yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know. He said, oh, man, this other dude out of Brooklyn, you know, be in the room just, you know, cutting, writing rhymes and stuff like that. So, you know, I was like, cool. That guy's name was David Hobbs. Also known as DJ Mr. Mix, founder, producer, arranger, whatever other odd job of the two-lie crew you want to say, I am that. <laughs> Mr. Mix grew up in Santa Ana, California. Like 45 minutes uh, southeast of um, Los Angeles. He loved music when he was a kid. He played the sax and he used to spend hours raking through his father's record collection. All types, all types of music, mainly um, blues, R&B, you know, and then you had, you know, classical stuff, you know, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra stuff. And that was uh, that was pretty much it. Mix joined the Air Force when he was 17. Um, 17. I had to be my father had to sign me in. In the Air Force, Mix started to travel and got exposed to even more music. He met some guys from Philly and New York who taught him how to use turntables and scratch. But the thing that really inspired him to become a DJ was a record called Planet Rock by Africa Bambata. And in particular, the percussion that drove that record. The, the drum machine was like a futuristic drum machine. You didn't really hear these drum sounds. You didn't hear a snare like that. You didn't hear a kick like that. Uh, anything that, whatever drum sound that you're accustomed to hearing from a drum set, it's been, you know, electrocuted, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mix found out that the thing making these extraterrestrial noises was a drum machine called the Roland 808. And he was impressed. Really impressed. I said, man, this machine is going to be the most profound machine ever in life. I knew that in 1982. You might not have heard of the 808, but you've definitely heard the 808. Recognize this classic drum loop? How about now? Mix had his heart set on getting an 808, and he couldn't believe his luck when he found one in a pawn shop. Just sitting there. He bought that 808 for 300 bucks and brought it back to the airbase in Riverside, California. So when Mr. Mix met Fresh Kid Ice, they were both ready to go. Mix had his drum machine, and Fresh Kid Ice had his book of rhymes. Well, you know, we figured, okay, let's just put something together, because he had the 808. Let's just see if we can make some party shit. Just do it to do it and see where it lead from here, you know? So we just pooled our money up, studios in California, 
um, didn't have the money to purchase our own um, two-inch tape. So, you know, we used some stock reel and recorded two songs in an eight-hour block. One of those songs was called It's Gotta Be Fresh, but everyone just called it Beatbox. That was a song with the Luke Skywalker line that Luke used as his personal calling card. And it became a big hit at the Pac Jam. So Luke, he decided to put the two live crew on. So I broke uh, Beatbox and Revelation, the two songs that was on, on the 12-inch of two live crew. But there's a catch. Luke wasn't going to put the two live crew on in Miami out of the kindness of his heart. He's a businessman, after all. If Luke was going to play two live crew shit in the Pac Jam and have every teenager in Liberty City rapping their lyrics, he's going to need something in return. I would call the artists and say, yeah, you ain't selling no records down here. If I break your record, you're going you, you're gonna to sell a lot of records, but you're going to give me a free show. And then I'll bring you back to then pay you to do another show. So that was always was my deal. You came down and performed for me. If you didn't, then... I wouldn't play your record anymore. And your new record wouldn't have been played. So Luke calls up the two live crew and asks them to fly to Miami. Yeah, he said, yeah, man, I'm a uh, concert promoter down here in Miami. I want to get you guys down here to do some shows. So I said, well, we ain't never did no shows before, you know, but we could come down there and, and do something. You know, we could do what it is that we did with these records. We could do that. You know, I could get, like, you know, some break dancers and all that other stuff to come down and do So No, 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 I don't need all those people. I don't need six or eight people trying to travel down there. All I need is the people that are on the songs. That's it. So Mix and Ice head over to Miami to play their first Pac Jam show. Their first show, period. The two live crew were green. So green that they didn't even think to ask whether they'd be paid or not. He just knew that we were some straight, lame asses. We didn't know anything from nothing, you know, and we wasn't ashamed of not knowing. We just didn't know, you know what I mean? So um, when we got done with the uh, shows, we was right over there in the projects. He paid us right in the middle of the street, paid us $200 a piece, you know, for, for doing the show. And at that time, shit, $200 was almost what you was getting for two weeks worth of work in the military. <laughs> That's how much your check was. He said, wow, you want us to come back quicker than, you know, next time you want us to come back? He said, well, you know, you'll be able, well, I'll bring you guys back down here. And sure enough, he brought us back like four months later, you know, New Year's. We was down there. He brought us down. And all of this while they were still in the Air Force. For Ice and Mix, it was military uniforms when they were on the base and sneakers, caps, and chains when they were at the pack jam. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't have no chains then, but but yeah, we had we had Puma sneakers and Adidas outfits and you know stuff like that, fat laces and all of that kind of you know the the regular b boy stuff that was happening at that time. Two Live Crew was starting to get some juice. Kids in Liberty City knew their name, and Beatbox was a Pac Jam staple. But what they did next was a thing that really put them on the map. Then we came down for another show, and that's when. We discovered to throw the D dance, you know what I'm saying? They, they were throwing the D and stuff like that. So picture this. Ice and Mix are in the Pac Jam. Dance to the drummer's beat drops. 
And before their eyes, the Pac Jam dance floor becomes a sea of teenagers dancing and throwing the D. We thought we thought they was crazy. It was it was way off the radar from you know pop locking and the stuff that you see on TV with what people are doing in different places. You know, they was way off the map, way off. But it was funny because people was really you know messing with that dance. So. I mean, who are we to um, say, okay, well, we might be the lame-os, you know, not them. <laughs> it was funny, though. It was a trip. And Throw the D gave Fresh Kid Ice an idea. He could see how much the kids loved doing a Throw the D dance. And so he thought, if they love the dance so much, they'll definitely love a Throw the D song. So on the flight back to the airbase, he pulls out his book of rhymes and starts writing. It took me like 30 minutes to write Throw the D. We recorded it. It was unlike any of the two live crew's earlier records. And Throw the D was unlike any other song, period. Throw the D paired Mr. Mix's 808 with a funky sample. But the thing that really made it unique was Fresh Kid Ice's vocals. Because on this track, he's not rapping about Star Wars characters or beatboxing. He's rapping about the things he saw inside the pack jam. A sweaty, sex-charged crucible of bass ruled by teenagers and hormones. And now Fresh Kid Ice's raps are starting to get raunchy. All you want to do is throw that D, throw that D, throw that D, throw D became a Liberty City anthem. The year it was released, the song was all over the city. It was in the pack jam. It was blaring out of boomboxes and car stereos. And it's this song that kickstarts a sequence of events that will lead to Luther Campbell and the two live crew coming together to make some of the nastiest music ever heard. To them becoming unlikely crusaders for freedom of speech. And the right to be as nasty as they want to be. Next time on Mogul, the classic two live crew lineup is completed. Luke gets into the record business, and things get even dirtier. Girls would get naked, and you know, and sometimes you might try to give you a blowjob. And, and on stage, yeah, I've gotten a blowjob on stage before. Can't wait for next week's episode to drop. No problem. You can now stream the entire season for free, exclusively on Spotify. Search for Mogul inside the Spotify app and hit the follow button. Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode is produced by Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijan Thomas, with help from Gabby Bulgarelli. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Boll and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Nana Quibena. Theme music and additional scoring by So Wiley and Bobby Lord. Our credits music is by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Fact-checking by Soraya Shockley. Huge shout-outs to everyone who helped us bring you this show. Peter Bresnan, Elise Harvin, Talia Rockman, Raymond Hartley, a.k.a. Raylo, Whitney Gale Benta, Rob Zipko, Julia Kaplan, Sydney Mamelis, Ariana Marion, and Jesse Burton. 
follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and the behind-the-scenes look at the making of this show. Our handle is at Mogul. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and I'll see you next episode.